Most of us live with this underlying assumption that no matter how bad it's going to be, when I wake up in the morning, the earth will have spun one more time and the sun will rise in the east. That's just an underlying assumption that all of us, whether we know it or not, we live and build our lives around. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Scripture that I think is intended to give us that same level of certainty, that same underlying bedrock assumption that there are some things that we are to build our lives on just as certain as the sun coming up in the morning. So this passage in the book of Esther, we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Esther. We're going to be in Esther chapter 4. And the text is a perfect springboard for our big idea. Just as certain as the sun coming up in the east every morning, our big idea for this morning's passage in Esther 4 goes like this. Live as though God's promises are already fulfilled. Live as though God's promises are already fulfilled. Because do you see in the mind of God, they already are. In fact, let me say it a little bit more strongly than that. For a promise of God's to not be fulfilled would be tantamount to the ungodding of God. And that is an impossibility. Paul says it in the book of 2 Timothy, God cannot deny himself. He cannot be ungodded. And so when God promises, it is absolute certain fact, more so even than the sun rising in the east. Live your life as though God's promises are already fulfilled. Well, just as a quick, quick run-up, we're in the book of Esther. It's the late 5th century B.C., and you remember we've been studying through getting to know some characters. We've learned about Esther, who won a beauty pageant, and she's now the queen of the Persian Empire. We've learned about Mordecai, who's actually named after the Persian chief deity, Marduk. That's not good. And in fact, neither Esther or Mordecai are actually still supposed to be in Persia. The call had come, come out of there, return to Israel. The exile is over. Seventy years prior, they had been taken off in successive exiles by the Babylonians, but the time of chastisement was complete. There was a death. There was separation. Israel was dead. But God said, come forth. Just like Lazarus out of the tomb, God called to his children and said, come out of there. And many, many did. But over a million people stayed there in the central part of the Persian Empire. It's estimated that as many as 15 million Jewish people were scattered all throughout the entirety of the Persian Empire. A pretty incredible thing. And so things, as we learned at the end of last week's message, at the end of chapter 3, are pretty bleak for the Jewish people. But what we're going to see is that God's once again going to be faithful to his people. He's going to use ordinary people, aren't you glad, to accomplish extraordinary things above and beyond anybody's expectations. Again, God's name's not going to be explicitly mentioned, and yet we will see, in a sense, his unseen hand and his providence and his goodness and his grace, all of which is supposed to remind those who read the book of Esther 2,500 years ago and us 2,500 years later that we are to live as though God's promises are already fulfilled. Now, here's what we're going to do to, again, engage people on different floors. We're going to have Stephanie Carter. She's going to read our passage in Esther chapter 4. I'll invite you to read along as Stephanie reads Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. 
and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, just to remind you, we are in Esther chapter 4, and the first three chapters are sort of setting up the tension of what's going to happen. At the conclusion of chapter 3, the bad guy in the story, Haman. See, you're supposed to hiss. I don't know if you're hissing on the first floor or the third floor or all around East Texas, but someone needs to spring a leak. Every time I say the word Haman, like all Jews all over the world, you hiss. So the bad guy 
has deceived the king, Xerxes, it's his Greek name, and there is to be an all-out genocide, a holocaust of all the Jewish people throughout the entirety of the Persian Empire. Let me remind you, that is 127 provinces, one of which is Judea, Jerusalem. 15 years earlier, the first wave of exiles returns and they begin to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. They are worshiping at the temple. They are returning to normal life in the promised land. But this edict has been translated even into Hebrew. All of those people, even as far away, 900 miles to the west, even those people are to be wholesale slaughtered and all of their possessions taken. So it's no wonder then, When we see in chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes. This chapter can really sort of be broken into three sections, and they're all alliterative because that's how Jesus would have taught where he here is with alliteration. So the first section is Mordecai mourns. Mordecai is going to mourn very publicly, very loudly, unambiguously. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This is a customary cultural way to say, hey, I'm not okay. It's a desperate plea for help. You know, kind of like when you put a sad face emoji on Facebook. Please, someone ask me how I'm doing. Well, this is a little bit more extreme even than that. He tears his clothes. He puts ashes and sackcloth on himself. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This is not just moping around. It's thought that the way this is phrased, Mordecai feels personally responsible that his rebellion and refusal to bow down to Haman, his refusal to bow down to that one man is now going to cost millions of lives of his countrymen. And so he's sort of around the corner. Now he doesn't care about being found out to be a Jew. He'd kept it secret for a long, long time. We know this from Esther chapter two. He's kept his religion and ethnicity hidden and he's told Esther to do the same thing. But now he's out there with it. And so he's very, very public in his, war- in his mourning. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. If the Persian army lost a battle, they could not come home with sad faces and mourning, or if they were wounded, they were not allowed anywhere near the king's palace. You could not mourn in his presence. You see, this king had no time for sadness. He had no time for your struggle, your weariness, your weakness. You couldn't even be near there, so he was stopped at the gate. And this is interesting Mordecai was apparently a high-ranking official who was used to sitting at the gate. He typically had access into the palace, but he cannot go in now. So this is a very calculated move on his part. He's causing a ruckus and a stir. Verse 2, he went to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What we have to remember is that the Holocaust from the Babylonians just a couple generations earlier was still fresh in their minds. We won't go into it this morning. But if you want some detail of the horrors that befell these people, you can read Lamentations chapter 3, where all of the atrocities afflicted these people is detailed by the prophet Jeremiah. That's still fresh in their minds. And now they're hearing that there's an official king's decree where they will be wholesale slaughtered. So all the Jewish people from all around the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire are all grieving. 
verse 4. We're going to see Mordecai's messages. Now we're going to play a game of telephone game, if you will, telling this guy who's going to tell this girl who's going to tell this guy who's going to back and forth. Mordecai messages, beginning in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. No, no, no. The queen was writhing in anguish. She's not just concerned. This is about to undo her entire world. She's the queen of Persia. And her well-known cousin is out there making a ruckus and a stir and a stink, quite literally, covered in ash and mourning and wailing and going about in a completely manner that is unbecoming. And so she's in writhing anguish. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. Because, you know, when you're facing a genocide, what you really need is a new set of mom jeans and an Izod just to take the edge off the Holocaust. Really? She doesn't get it. She's been cooped up in her palace, living in the lap of luxury. She doesn't even understand what all is actually going on. So she just thinks, oh, Mordecai, this is embarrassing. And so she sends him some clothes. But look how the verse ends. But he would not accept them. He's not going to play this game. He's going to go ahead and draw her all the way out. Verse 5, then Esther called for Hatak. Now, Hatak is one of her servants, one of her eunuchs. Hatak is this strange little word that basically means the good one. I don't know that you want to be the bad eunuch. That's probably not a good career move, but he's the good one, Hatak. And he's going to play a central role in this narrative, moving the plot back and forth from the palace to the gate. She called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. What is happening Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. The writer wants us to know that this is no longer hidden. This is in full display right in the center of the city of the capital of the empire. In verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries. Now that's interesting. How does Haman know that level of detail? That was a private conversation between Haman... There we go, hissing, 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 and the king. Apparently, Mordecai has some access to some other colleagues or servants. He knew the exact sum, 10,000 talents of silver. That's 375 tons of silver. And the amount that he promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the, the word here is destruction. No, it's annihilation, extermination of the Jews. Verse 8 Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their annihilation that Hatak might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king. <laughs> this dusty Jew just told a eunuch to command the queen of Persia. Things have suddenly gotten a little bit more serious, no? To go to the king, to beg his favor, literally to go before his face and to plead with him on behalf of her people. Dun, dun, dun. Now it's out there. Mordecai has played his master stroke. Previously, she has been hidden at his direction, but now Mordecai has just told Hatak that she also is Jewish. Even the queen of Persia will not be protected or safe from this slaughter that goes forth. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, to which Mordecai, Hatak's got to be going, seriously, can y'all not just text? I mean, really, how old are you? It's not that hard. Oh, I get it. You have flip phones. Fine. Verse 11, 
And the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther begins to make excuses. She's got a personal problem. You might remember that after Esther wins her beauty pageant, The Bachelor, season one, the king gives her a rose. She's invited in because, you know, she was in training for 12 months on how to win this deal. Pampered and oiled up and manicured for 12 months. She finally goes in. She wins his heart. But then the text is pretty clear. There's a second round. Ooh, Bachelor season two. And so she's already sort of put aside. And the king continues to busy himself with other interests, shall we say, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I haven't even gone in to see the king these 30 days. And she has a power problem, not just a personal problem, a power problem. Everybody knows you do not just waltz into the king's chambers. One does not merely enter into, no. you don't just go into Xerxes' chamber because if you do and he did not invite you, well, you find yourself with an excellent view of the city impaled on a stake. There's one law. You do not just barge in nor charge in, you die. We're going to find out that in nine years from this narrative, someone actually does that, and they're successful in assassinating the king in his inner chambers. But she says, I can't just go in unless he lowers the scepter. It's interesting. Side note, this one's for free. Usually in contexts of comfort and prosperity, our courage does not thrive. I want you to hear that. In our contexts of comfort and prosperity, those are not usually, normatively, the breeding grounds of our courage. And so, because God loves us, he will often thrust us into situations that are above our pay grade and capacity to deal. She's grown complacent, pampered in the palace. I've got all of these problems. Eh, well, Mordecai's not having it. So we've seen Mordecai's mourning, Mordecai's messaging. Now this last section of the chapter, we're going to see Mordecai's marshalling. He's going to get things done. Beginning in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. See, we got all these messages going back and forth. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Hey, Esther, the die is cast. You're a Jewess. Everybody knows that now. And when the decree goes forth, you yourself will not survive this deal. And then verse 14, you might want to circle this. It's the central verse I would contend for the entire chapter for sure. And I would even argue for the entire book of Esther. Esther 4, 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. This gives me goosebumps. We are not told anything about the faithfulness, the piety, the devout character of Mordecai. He's named after a Persian god, but here's what he does know at least. God made a promise to preserve for himself a people. Mordecai doesn't know how. He just knows that the Jews have always survived and that the Jews will survive. Perhaps he has in mind the covenants that God made with Abraham, Moses, and David, and that were prophesied by the contemporary prophet Jeremiah. Perhaps... We don't know that. He just knows that God will save his people somehow, some way, by somebody. 
I love that. You know what that means? Mordecai is living as though God's promise is already fulfilled. That's our takeaway, and that's the mirror we want to hold up and say, is that what I'm doing? Is that what I'm all about? Again, verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. You can either die or you can die. You can be a part of the solution in God's provision and die, or you can shrink back and die. Sometimes those are our choices. Sometimes life puts us in a position where all of our choices are hard, but they don't mean that we have to sin. That's an important principle of the Christian life. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Esther, God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Oh, Esther, my cousin, you thought it's just because you were beautiful. You thought it's because you ate the right vegan foods. You thought it was because you used the right cosmetics for 12 months. Actually, I think God placed you in such a position for such a time as this, to be the instrumentality of his goodness, provision, and grace. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. This Hatak, his step counter was off the charts this day. He was running back and forth so many times. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish. It's such a nice, sweet word. If I am destroyed, then I am destroyed. She's made her decision. She has rallied her soul to the purpose of her God. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. That's an interesting turn. Esther's now calling the shots. She gives Mordecai the instructions and Mordecai does everything that she tells him to do. Well, the the thrust, the centrality of the passage, Esther chapter 4, really goes again like this. Live as though God's promises are already fulfilled. I just want to apply that with two quick principles, but I want to start off by saying what I'm not going to give as an application. The application for Esther and specifically for Esther chapter 4 is absolutely not go and be like Esther. It's not the application. Go and be like Esther, because if you try that, you will be crushed. Do you know why? You're not Esther. You're not even Mordecai. Truth be told, you and I are a whole lot more like Haman. That's right. We're the enemy. You want to place yourself in the story? You're not Esther. You're not even Mordecai. You're the enemy. But there's a word about that. You are not Esther. Simply trying to go out and do more to be better will make you fall inevitably by the time you finish your last fish fillet from Long John Silver's. You're not going to do it. And then you find yourself on what Eric likes to call the downward spiral of shame. It's not very fun. They say, gosh, I'm trying to be more like Esther, but for starters, I'm not even that attractive, and I can't, gosh, it's just so hard. That's not the application. Here's application point number one. It goes like this. God's promises are already fulfilled. So the big idea is live as though God's promises are already fulfilled. Well, here's good news. God's promises are already fulfilled. God lives and exists in the eternal now. 
when God promises I will, it is what we call future history. It is certain. And in fact, like I said, we're not really up against an enemy like Haman. It's way worse. Our enemy is sin and death. And now you should really hiss when you think about your own sin and death. It's bad. It's vile. It is opposed by default to the purpose and the plan of God. But God has promised to defeat our sin and our death. And he already has, and he is, and he ultimately will do so. Sure as the sun rises, that is absolutely true. And so, brothers, sisters, friends, when you succumb, not if, when you succumb to the gravity of depravity, and you do that thing, you say that thing, you think that thing for the 10,000th time in the exact same way, and you begin to think to yourself, gosh, I... I'm not so sure that I'm actually redeemed. Or Why would I keep doing that? I'm not so sure that God can actually forgive. He has already fulfilled his promise. It is finished. It is a misunderstanding of his grace and his mercy to delay the confession of your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to forgive us from all of our unrighteousness. The same God that rescued this unfaithful people that wasn't even seeking after him has promised that he would also deliver us from our own sin and death because he promised that he would and he did. The promise to save his people was fulfilled on the cross and of course, praise God, the empty tomb. Matt said it earlier, you are forgiven. This life is learning to live in the light and love of that forgiveness. Second point of application Oh, you might have missed this in the narrative, but we who have the privilege of living on this side of the cross in the New Testament age, it's a wonderful comparison when we look at the king, Xerxes. But Jesus is a better king. Xerxes would not allow anybody near him who was sad, who was having a bad day, who was depressed, who was discouraged. You can't be near him. He's too busy and important to be bothered. You cannot approach him on your terms. And I'm afraid that many people, even in the 21st century, still think of King Jesus like Xerxes. Oh, he's too busy. He's too important. I'm nobody. I've got little problems. I'm sad. I don't want to bring him down. I don't want to disappoint him. No, no, no. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. You see, Jesus is a better king. Xerxes did not want to be bothered by other people's pain and problem. Jesus says, I want all of your pain. I'll take all of your problems into myself. I will become that sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus is a way better king. Not only that, Xerxes died. He's assassinated in his bedroom. But Jesus is alive. He is a death-proof king that to this day invites us in with all of our problems, all of our pain, all of our powerlessness. The scepter has already been lowered as the cross was raised. So the message of Esther chapter 4, live as though God's promises are already fulfilled because they are. 